This episode is brought to you by Alpha Architects for Advisors. Whether you're an established firm or just starting out, you know the right systems can be the difference maker to achieving your growth goals. That's why Alpha Architect now offers a suite of turnkey model portfolios that can be customized to fit your practice. Built on Alpha Architect's decades of rigorous academic research, our model portfolios aim to systematize portfolio management so that you can spend less time tinkering with funds and more time finding your next great client. Systemize today to save time tomorrow. That's building with conviction. That's Alpha Architect for advisors. To learn more about Alpha Architect's model portfolios and to schedule a consultation, visit advisors.alphaarchitect.com slash models. That's advisors, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot alphaarchitect.com slash models. Alpha Architect for advisors, built with conviction. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Direct indexing has experienced rapid growth in recent years. Falling transaction costs and improving technology has allowed more and more investors to deploy an index-based strategy by owning the underlying securities rather than using an ETF or mutual fund. This has opened up opportunities to potentially improve after-tax returns and to customize index-based portfolios for each investor's needs. In this episode, we speak with O'Shaughnessy Asset Management's Aaron Stanhope. O'Shaughnessy's custom indexing platform has expanded the potential of direct indexing by layering in a series of features on top of it to allow investors to build custom portfolios to fit their individual needs. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with O'Shaughnessy Asset Management's Aaron Stanhope. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, guys. It's great to be back. We wanted to have you on to talk about uh, direct and custom indexing, what it is, where it's going, the benefits to investors, and we'll kind of get in the weeds on sort of how you guys are implementing this um, for advisors and investors. Your firm, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, um, which is now owned by Franklin Templeton, developed a technology solution called Canvas in which you offer custom indexing solutions to the advisor community to then offer to their um, end investors. So we couldn't think of a better person um, to come on and talk about this with us. So so thanks so much. Of course. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Just to set the stage, can you talk about what direct indexing is and maybe just how long it's been around, some of the history of it? Yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's been around for, for decades, actually. Uh, it's uh, parametric, I think, started maybe 30 years ago. Aperio, who's the other big player, probably about 20 years ago. So this investment strategy, if you will, has been around for, for quite a long time. And effectively, really what it is, is taking a passive index, the S&P 500 as an example, that's market cap weighted. And instead of owning an ETF, like the SPY ETF or IVV or whatever it is, you own the underlying securities. And that gives you a lot of advantages and be able to, to do different things within the account. The most obvious of which is, is tax loss harvesting. All, all of a sudden, it seems like direct indexing came on the scene. And, you know, it almost came out of nowhere. Like you said, it, it was around for a long time, maybe on the institutional level, but, you know, individual investors had never really heard of it. So what changes happened in the overall investing landscape that maybe accelerated this development? You know, I really think that the technology, number one, um, just the computing power, which as we kind of get into the conversation, this will become more relevant, but to do direct indexing at scale, you really need tremendous amounts of computing power to be able to do it. 
because you're, you're not thinking about just positions. You're thinking about individual lots. And for anybody that's got a, you know, retail brokerage account, you may own an Apple position, but maybe you've accumulated it over years. You might have 50 different lots, you know, in that particular name, a period that you've, you've bought it. Um, so that all goes into what we refer to as like an optimization that ultimately is how you manage the portfolio. So technology and the computing power has been a, a huge leap forward. The other one where we got incredibly lucky with this, uh, we didn't know that it was going to happen. Never, never bet against the luck of the Irish. But miraculously, within a few months of us launching this platform, transaction fees went away. Um, so a huge cost, a, a huge explicit cost associated with trading basically went away. And I don't think it's a coincidence that since then you've really seen this tick up in the, in the retail channel. Because in the institutional space, when you're trading, you know, you're talking a, a penny or so per share. So you can kind of do this at scale with lots of transactions. Direct indexes require lots of transactions to generate tax loss harvesting. So I'd say those are probably two of the largest is really technology and um, explicit costs going away. What is the difference? I know you guys have this, uh, there's direct indexing and then there's what you call custom indexing. Can you just explain the difference between those? So direct indexing, the way that we think about it is just replicating a passive index in an account. That's what you get. You know, it's, it's very standard. So we kind of think of that as more of a, a product. We think of custom indexing as more of a, a solution or a platform, if you will, where you basically give the allocator, um, in this case, an advisor, it could be an institution um, or even a high net worth individual. Um, the ability to change that away from passive. So you can layer on things like factors. Um, you can layer on active managers as well. That's sort of the new forefront for where custom index is going. You can layer in ESG choices. And um, obviously tax management, as we sort of mentioned earlier, is sort of the key offering associated with direct indexing. But you can do that tax management on the whole piece. So you've incorporated values, um, what you're trying to gain from active management. You can also manage for other things as well. Um, if there is an investor that maybe um, they've had a long tenured career at a large corporation and they have um, some restricted stock or whatever it may be, you can uh, effectively customize the portfolio to be able to do things like workdowns of stock. Um, you can do things like modeling private companies. Um, and managing around those risks as well. So custom indexing, think of direct indexing as the base and custom, custom indexing is sort of layer on, layering on all of the additional features. One of the things that I find fascinating with the development of Canvas and this piece of business for you is you guys had a successful quantitative asset management firm. Um, I mean, we've followed Jim and his books and this, the, the factor-based strategies for almost two decades now. And, you know, at the firm level, you guys decided to pursue custom indexing, develop Canvas. So, and, and then it, you know, ended up being a very big success for you and pro probably a large part of the uh, reasons why you, the company was acquired. So can you just kind of share, you were at the company then, can you share the thought process of what you were thinking and what the leadership was thinking and why you decided to pursue it so aggressively? It was really one of those things that uh, is sort of like an overnight success, if you will, that was 15 years in the making. Um, 
we were a really odd boutique asset manager given our size, kind of the depending on the year, five to eight billion dollars, in that we had a very robust SMA business. So we had built out all of the operational backbone in order to manage thousands of separately managed accounts. Had we not done that, even if we had the idea of Canvas when we did, there's no way we could have launched it. Um, Because what's really at the core of the backbone, something that I would not wish doing on my worst enemy, but our implementation team is incredibly good at doing, is connecting with custodians, reconciling overnight feeds, all of these things, all of this minutia that you wouldn't want your client anywhere near just because it's so complex and so minute. We basically built that capability and that muscle over 10 to 15 years. So the operational backbone existed to be able to manage a lot of those accounts at scale. And then the question sort of came up. Um, so when Patrick took over as CEO, he sort of launched this idea of um, what we refer to as research partners. Basically, we have this research platform that we built alongside that operational platform. And there's only you know a handful of people that have access to it, this tens of thousands of securities, decades worth of data to be able to look at factor returns. So the research partners program was basically this idea that we can start turning the platform inside out and see if there are other people that are interested in using it. So we identified a few people, primarily on Twitter, um, that had sort of like a particular investment interest or specialty or need with the quantitative prowess to be able to do the research. And we found that there were. And so then the question sort of moved to the next logical step of, well, there are allocators that probably want access to something as well. Can we give them the keys to the kingdom effectively and let them decide what the output is from our research platform? And so that was the genesis of the idea. We knew we could manage the assets. Given our factor expertise, we knew we could manage a passive portfolio, which is a factor portfolio, which is one factor, which is market cap. Um, so from there, it was just kind of this like logical step process. And, you know, th there's also something to be said for the fact that value did really terribly over the last 10 years. And we were doing, I would say, relative to our peer group very well as an independent asset manager. Um, but you start to kind of look at the landscape of your, your cohorts and your peers and what's going on there and thinking about what advisors are asking for. Advisors were moving to either passive or in a lot of cases, smart beta. And so smart beta is really just a merging of an active component and a passive component in a lot of ways. So we have the ability to offer that, so why wouldn't we? So it's kind of the confluence of like a lot of different things that came together that ultimately launched this, this business. Starting with uh, the S&P 500, I just want to kind of start at the, at the basics and work our way down. Like when the S&P 500 is followed in a strategy like this, is it typically you buy all 500 stocks or is it something where you take a sampling of the stocks and say, all right, this will, this will match it closely enough. You know, I don't really need to own all 500 stocks. It, it's a sampling. Um, so you generally aren't going to own all, all 500. You'd have a long tail of positions of one, two, three basis points that don't really do anything. Um, so a U.S. large cap is kind of going to be in the 200, 250 range, depending on kind of the constraints that you put on the account. Um, so it is more of a sampling approach. What would, what would a small cap look like? How many stocks would you typically have in something like that? Uh, small cap, I guess a decent rule of thumb is, um, is maybe about half. I'm kind of like, I'm trying to check myself on that in my head just because, so with large cap, what you tend to have is 
at the larger end of the distribution, it's sort of more concentrated in the top 10. But then in a small cap index, your highest weighted name is maybe like 50 basis points, unless it was during the meme craze and all of a sudden like AMC or one of the others was 3% of the index, you know, for, for a few months. Um, but the, so it's not, uh, the distribution of the weights is a little bit different within small cap. So you're going to own more of the index within, within small cap. One of the ideas you referred to earlier, which you'll hear about, talked about a lot with this is this idea of tax alpha. Can you just explain what that concept is and sort of how these strategies generate tax alpha? So tax alpha is like the most amorphous thing that we have ever attempted to grapple. And it gets complicated really quickly. And the way that I kind of think about it is, um, you know, your 1040 is a pretty complicated document. And that's the thing that is determining what your tax alpha is. So it gets complicated really, really quick. Um, I think that the easiest way to think about it is sort of the value add that you're creating through a tax management strategy associated with deferring tax payments into the future. So what I mean by that is if you have an S&P 500 strategy, what you're looking to do over time is even within the index that's appreciated at about 10% per year, that's the average annual return for, for markets. Around 40% of the stocks in the index are actually delivering a negative calendar year return. So what that allows you to do if you own the individual securities is sell those names and harvest those losses. You're basically booking a tax asset that what that allows you to do is, is to pair that against gains that you're recognizing. And you're basically just deferring the tax payments to an, into the future. Because what you're doing when you do this selling the losses against the gains is you're really lowering the basis of the portfolio. That can become a problem somewhere down the line. So these tax loss harvesting strategies aren't really tax avoidance. It's really more about tax deferral for most people. I'll set aside for a moment another whole realm um, which can make things even more complicated, which is around gifting um, and inheritance where then you have changes in the cost basis um, that can sort of change the picture. But for the most part, it's about tax deferral and deferral and just a standard taxable account. This is an unanswerable question, given that you just said this is really specific to every single person and you know, what their tax rates are and stuff. But when people talk about these strategies, they sort of try to get a general idea, like how much tax alpha can they generate? You know, you'll see some providers come out and say, all right, we've generated two or 3% a year. And then you'll have other people on the other side say, you know, well, in the long run, they don't generate a lot. Like, how do you think through that? I mean, has there been some research done in terms of what types of tax, tax alpha these things generate? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a ton. I mean, we have, um, so there's a couple of ways to go about it. You can do a Monte Carlo simulation where you basically use historical returns, do some randomization, um, and basically attempt to recreate certain market environments. And you create 10,000 simulations. You kind of calculate what the tax alpha is about that. The challenge with Monte Carlo simulations is it's all dependent on the distribution of returns that's assumed in the model. So we've actually, um, we've looked at that. We generally don't like it um, a bunch. What we tend to focus on is we basically replicated our production environment in a research framework. So looking at tax lots, the underlying model positions, reconciling shares, dividends, and, and all that fun stuff. And what we'll do is we will actually assume like a 10-year holding period. So let's say like 1993, that's kind of one of the um, 
it's a great year to start from because you can look at the results relative to like the SPY ETF, which is sort of the most tax efficient vehicle that you can really find for taxable investors um, until you have to liquidate it at the end of the process. But so if you start in 1993 and then say, okay, I'm going to invest a portfolio with cash. I'm going to hold that portfolio for 10 years and I'm going to tax loss harvest for that 10 years. So we'll think of that as a vintage. Then 1994 rolls around. We'll start another vintage in January 1 through 2003. And we'll sort of roll that forward to where you can get kind of 20-ish vintages, so to speak. And you get a tax alpha number associated with each of those. And what's nice about that is you can get a really strong appreciation for how path dependent tax alpha is. So in some of those simulations, as an example, if there's a huge drawdown right when you invest, you get to book a bunch of tax losses that you can use against gains in future years and your tax alpha is going to look great. Versus, you know, sort of the flip side, if you invest, let's say in like 2003 at the bottom of the market after the tech bubble, and you really don't have any losses, your tax, tax alpha is not going to look particularly great. You're going to probably about break even um, for doing that. So that's kind of the approach that we take is let's look at different vintages and look at the range of outcomes, which for like a U.S. large passive portfolio, our expectation, the kind of central tendency is like 50 to 100 basis points. That's kind of on the one of the more conservative methodologies for measuring tax alpha. So as if tax just in general wasn't complicated enough, there's really no particular industry standard. There's a couple different versions that people have used. One's recommended by the CFA Institute. Um, one uh, uh, parametric had um, uh, basically created um, years ago um, and a lot of stuff that's in between. So the measure that you use is, is important as well. How dependent is this on tax rates? So like, will people in lower, obviously like the person in California in the top bracket is probably someone who benefits a ton from this. Like, how about someone in one of the lower brackets in Texas? I mean, is this something that you think works across that? Or do you think it really is very dependent on what your tax rate is? It, it does. It does work for anyone. It, in any case where there's a tax to be paid, it's going to be helpful. But obviously the, the value of that tax deferral, if your income is lower and your tax bracket is lower, is just less. Um, overall. Um, like in particular, the place where tax alpha is tends to be the greatest for the individual is when, let's say you have a U.S. large cap passive account, you're generating lots of losses. If you have the ability to pair those against short-term capital gains that is generated by another portfolio, maybe a hedge fund investment or something along those lines, that's where you get the greatest benefit because short-term capital gains are taxed at that higher rate versus the cap gains rate. So that's, there's sort of, there are individual scenarios where you get more bang for your buck out of tax loss harvesting. And that's sort of why there are multiple different levels of, or I should say methods of measuring tax alpha is to accommodate those different scenarios. I know ESG is a topic you guys have written about a lot. And, you know, I've, I've followed ESG for a while. And if you asked me right now to define ESG, I couldn't tell you. Um, I mean, there's so many different ways to look at it. I mean, would that be, first of all, if, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about why ESG is so hard to define and then how a custom indexing strategy can sort of customize that for each person. So ESG is one that similar taxes is really hard to, to nail down. Uh, we definitely in working with clients have not had um, been able to generate, you know, a particular definition. We certainly have ideas. 
I think there's, there's sort of twofold issues with, with ESG. It is incredibly personal. As an example, we have, um, we manage assets for, um, a, a religious set of institutions that are of the same denomination in the same region of the country that have different ESG requirements. You know, so it's very personal, the organization, there are lots of different entities that have rules, whether, um, it's the, the Catholic church, uh, Sharia law, um, you know, different environmental institutions. So it's, it's a wide spectrum, uh, there. And then also at the individual level, just what, what's important to you. Some person may care deeply about data privacy, um, or diversity on boards, um, but not really care about water conservation for whatever reason. Um, or maybe they're in the energy industry and they don't care about carbon capture, you know, so it just, and I'm not saying any of it's right or wrong, but it's just such a wide swath of opinion. So our approach has always been, because of course we take it from the quantitative perspective of, are there ESG factors that generate alpha? It's actually a really hard question to answer because the really granular ESG data kind of really only goes back to maybe 2010 for some themes, usually in like the carbon space. And it's all self-reported from companies. So they're kind of questions in terms of the data that's available, how far you can back test it. Now, there are some aspects of ESG, like particularly the governance side, where a lot of that tends to be in the financial statements. So um, some of those items you can test back to like the 60s and look really, really great. We incorporate some of those in our process already before ESG became, you know, what, what it is today. So it's all about what people individually think about it, how much data is available. We have not come to anything really conclusive, particularly for the E and the S for what is beneficial from a returns perspective. But our approach, again, sort of getting back to this idea of custom indexing is we want clients to have the option to express whatever views they want to. And so. We provide around 80-ish options, I, I believe, um, for different ESG uh, themes and then also product involvement exclusions. So people can set them up however they want. They can build their own ESG allocation. The way that we help manage expectations in terms of returns, because I think that for such a long period of time, if you wanted to allocate to ESG, you basically had to sacrifice returns or risk for value. Um, you know, the rudimentary way to get out of um, uh, 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 polluters, let's say, in like the energy space was just to exclude the entire sector or exclude oil and gas, which can cause massive deviations in, in returns over time. So the way that we think about it is, can we apply these restrictions to the investment model? And can we then minimize the tracking error to the, the original model before those restrictions are applied? And so what that helps us do is fill risk gaps that exist. So we're not just eliminating an entire sector or an entire industry. So that's kind of how we think about it is we don't know what the return picture looks like from an investment perspective, but we want to provide the, the option for it. And how does that look to the advisor? So the, the advisor basically has like a control panel type thing where they can turn these things on and off depending on, I think you said you had 80 or something like that, things that can be changed. They can turn them on and off in the portfolio. Exactly. They can make exclusions. Um, they can build their own ESG profile. Um, they can provide tilts into and out of certain themes. Um, so it's, it's a lot of control at a really granular level. And it's kind of one of those things that I think the advisors that have client bases that use it, it's when you sort of get to the performance conversation at the end of the quarter, you don't just have to talk about performance. 
you can talk about performance on other metrics like ESG. How are we doing in terms of the portfolio's representation relative to the benchmark and the certain metrics that you that you care about? Yeah, that's sort of an interesting thing with with direct custom indexing in general is this idea that, you know, you're not really trying to have the best performance necessarily. You know, you're like if you're following the S&P 500, your goal is really track the S&P 500. You know, if you outperform the S&P 500 by 300 basis points, you probably haven't done your job. So like and in doing some of the strategies we do that, that's been an interesting change for me is thinking about it like your goal is really follow this index. You know, your goal is not necessarily not necessarily beat the index. It, exactly. It, it creates a lot of other goals and objectives that you're targeting. But to the end of the day, it's really what clients are looking for anyway. Um, you know, obviously returns are important um, at the end of the day, but many other things that you get to get to talk about um, with clients on. How do you think about factors here? Because I think that would be an interesting push and pull. You know, on one hand, you know, factors can generate better performance in a portfolio. On the other hand, factors, certain ones specifically, generate more turnover, which kind of contradicts a little bit with the tax alpha. So how do you think about that balance sort of between the tax alpha here, but also trying to use factors where you can? Yeah, so factors definitely um, increase turnover in portfolios. That's just a natural aspect of them. Um, and it does influence the tax results. It's a, it's an interesting paradigm because whenever you include an active strategy, I'll just broadly include traditional fundamental active with factor also, you're increasing turnover, but you're actually, in a lot of cases, increasing the opportunity for tax alpha. I'll sort of like trying to try to walk that back a little bit. Let's say you, you have a strategy that generates 4% of excess return. That's a really high number. Most of them don't, but let's just say it's 4%. Let's say that in an untax managed scenario, let's say that you are getting taxed on, let's just call it half that. So there's a 2% tax drag that occurs. Well, the tax loss harvesting strategy, maybe, maybe you can eliminate 150 basis points of that. It's possible. And so then you have a greater opportunity for tax alpha. Whereas within a passive strategy, you maybe the max that you can get is like that 50 to 100 basis points. So within, um, within active, tax management is actually more important within taxable accounts than it is within passive. Um, but it's all about kind of like where things sit in terms of the after-tax returns overall. Are there certain factors that work better here? Like not knowing a lot about it, I would think, all right, value might be a little bit better because it's lower turnover. Momentum might be a little bit worse because it needs more turnover. I mean, is that right or is that not the right, right way to think about it? No, no, it is. I mean, so momentum definitely is going to be harder um, to, to, to generate, uh, tax alpha that's there just because in a lot of cases, in some momentum strategies, it can be a hundred percent per year. So then you kind of get into more short-term taxable events that are occurring as well. It, it, that can be the case for value and other factors that we use like shareholder yield as well, but it tends to be much less so just because the investment horizon for those tends to be much, much longer. One of the cool things I've seen with this is if you have like an executive in a, in a major tech company or something and they come with like a lot of shares of Google or something like that, there's some really cool things this strategy can do to help them with that. And I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. So uh, concentrated stocks is, is definitely a, a large component of the offering. And effectively, the way to think about it is, let's say that, again, is like you said, it's an executive. They've been with a company for a long period of time. They have this huge low basis position in the company stock and they want to de-risk or diversify because in a lot of ways, sort of the, the path to wealth in this case can also be sort of the, the greatest hindrance to wealth on a go forward basis if that stock underperforms. So the way to think about it is, so we can take in that 
those assets. And over time, what we'll attempt to do is we'll pair it effectively with um, a passive, usually U.S. large cap portfolio. Um, so what it actually requires is um, you, you kind of need some dry powder to be able to help work down that position. And by dry powder, I mean maybe on day one, you sell down a portion of that concentrated position that we can then invest in a large cap U.S. portfolio so that we can generate losses from that smaller piece to pair against the larger one as we continue to work it down. But the way that the, the mechanics work is, you know, a, a loss comes up in the broadly diversified portion of the portfolio, we'll then sell down a piece of the concentrated position, and then you re, uh, redeploy effectively um, both of those um, portions that you've sold down into stocks that basically minimize tracking error of the entire portfolio to whatever the target index is. So tracking error is really kind of the de facto metric for a lot of tax loss harvesting, transitions, all of that, where that is the constant question that the portfolio manager is um, required to answer is what trades can I make to reduce tracking error to my target? And that's what the whole process is really designed around. It's interesting, you know, as someone who's written a lot of code myself, I can realize what a coding challenge this was. I mean, you've got a lot of moving parts in a situation like that. And to, to do all of that through code is, you know, is, is really a great accomplishment. It, it is. It, it definitely at one point, um, I think our portfolio management team built and rebuilt uh, the optimization algorithm, uh, you know, a couple times. Um, we had to get an industrial scale optimizer. I mean, the, the numbers get mind boggling really, really quickly. And you need a really good, robust uh, risk model in order to do all this. And so, yeah, it gets, it gets complicated pretty quick. Are there any other cool things that I haven't mentioned that you could do with this? Like, for instance, when we had, we had Bill Sweet from Ritholz in the podcast a while back, and I think he mentioned something along the lines of, you know, you could like set a capital gains budget. So you could say for this account, you know, I don't want to take any more than 100,000 of capital gains this year. And then the system would just sort of automatically throughout the year realize gains, but not exceed that level. Is there anything like that or anything cool that we haven't mentioned we could talk about? Yeah, so we have that now. Um, you can set a capital gains budget, which is really useful for advisors. Let's say that their client knows that they're going to have a large distribution or a large gain event that's going to occur in a particular year. And they just say, I cannot stand another level of taxes or it's going to push me into this bracket or whatever. We can set that budget. We'll manage to it over time. It's not really like a permanent solution, um, but it can help take the guesswork out of the tax bill at the end of the year, at the beginning of the year. I want to take a little more into the tax alpha thing, because, you know, having built a little of this myself, like a much simpler strategy than you guys have, like I've, I've learned like how, how challenging this can be in the weeds. And so obviously when, when you're doing this and you're generating tax alpha, this is not something like when people used to do it, where on December 15th, you say, all right, I'm going to sell my losers and you move on. Like this is something that's happening throughout the year. So I'm just wondering, how do you think about the process of like when you should be generating losses, like how often you should be, do, be doing it? Like how, how does that process work? So, um, so we harvest daily. So what we're doing is every night there are multiple optimizations that run on every single account. And basically when the traders get to their desk in the morning, there are trades that are suggested. Now, some of them don't sort of meet our thresholds for the, the cost benefit analysis in terms of either, um, uh, uh, tax losses generated, um, or tracking error gains. So it's not that we're always trading accounts on a daily basis. Um, but we're sort of prepared to do so, um, if we can. So that's really key is the whole optimization process. And then what that optimization is really doing is there's a risk model that sort of oversees the entire process. 
which is basically um, evaluating every position based on dozens of risk factors. They're statistical risk factors. And so they're not really interpretable. It's not like inflation or GDP or factors or, or what have you. Um, and that's then being used to basically attempt to project tracking error on a go forward basis and say, um, you know, X name by removing it from the portfolio is going to, and then, and then adding another name to the portfolio in its place is going to reduce tracking error by X amount. And if the traders decide that that's appropriate, then they'll, they'll go forward with the trade. So we harvest frequently, um, which I would say that the the research on on the frequency of tax harvesting is still pretty nascent. There's some providers that do it quarterly. There's some that'll do it whenever, but then we'll kind of lock the account for a period of time. There are some that'll do it, uh, I think, weekly, monthly. So I think that the jury is still out. There are benefits and and sort of cons to to both of those. We've chosen to do it on a daily basis, um, which. Uh, fortunately, over the last few years, has been beneficial in kind of a volatile environment. I think one of the interesting challenges with this is once you've sold something, is thinking about what to put back in. You know, you want you obviously want to limit tracking error. You know, with certain stocks, like particularly like the really big ones, like the Amazons of the world, it's probably hard to find something that sort of tracks them. Like, how does that process work in general of thinking what to put back in to replace what you took out? It, it's really all about the the risk model. So um, if a name comes out of the portfolio, what I kind of, the way that I sort of think about it is there's a, there's a hole in the risk profile of the portfolio and you kind of need to fill that hole. So, you know, what do you have to do that? You really have the rest of the the model or the rest of the portfolio, those existing names. You can buy into some of those names and overweight those relative to what you had before in order to fill that risk hole. So a company like Amazon is obviously in a number of different businesses. You can basically create like a synthetic Amazon stock using lots of other names in the S&P 500. And that's effectively what you do to fill that hole. And then once, so you, so you do that for the wash sale period, attempting to keep the deviation from the benchmark very, very low where you can. And then after the wash sale period, you sort of do the same thing. You unleash your optimizer again. And basically say, what trades can you do now, given that you've filled that risk hole to minimize tracking error again? It may be going right back into the position. It may be going in other positions. It, some of those positions are, again, maybe holding some of them and selling some of them. So again, it's all, it's all done in a very systematic way so that it's scalable. Yeah, so it's not just you 31 days later or whatever, you're just reversing this because obviously you could have a gain on what you bought as your replacement. So it, it's all an optimization process, essentially, that, that sort of makes that decision. Right, exactly. One of the things that I think this kind of plays into is sort of investor behavior. So, and tell me if I'm right or wrong here. Like, as I understand it, the advisor would sit down with their client. And if they're building this custom indexing strategy, um, you know, the client is obviously giving some type of input into where maybe they want the or how they want the index to be built. So I guess the question, do you guys have any sort of thoughts? Is, is, this, is this ultimately better for the investor because it would encourage maybe better investor behavior with their ability to stick with the strategy because they have kind of have some skin in the game in terms of building it? We think that it will. It, it's still early days, but retention has been really, really high so far. And what we've generally found is that um, for the, the Canvas partner firms that we work with, 
that have sort of fully adopted Canvas as their really go-to solution for equities, um, that their businesses have grown at, at higher rates than the overall industry, which we think is just indicative of the usefulness of it. The reason I kind of bring those up is because we don't have the, it'll take 10 years to have the client retention data, sort of like a full market cycle. We think that that's going to be the case because as you all know, whenever you can engage with a client more about portfolio or the plan or whatever it is and have them have a part in building it effectively, they're going to be more likely to stick through it in sort of hard times. And in periods like, like 2022, when the market is down, at the very least, you can point to the losses that you've generated during that period to basically say, all right, when the market turns, as it always does in every cycle, at least you're going to have this, this tax asset that's going to be there, that's going to drive some tax savings for you in the future. So we do, we do think that it will. I mean, there, I would say that there are probably going to be some corner cases where someone that maybe was doing it themselves that started with um, uh, custom indexing may kind of look at their account and say, oh my God, like, what are all these trades? Why am I getting all these confirms? Because that is one psychological hurdle that advisors have come up against of clients that have been in either EFs or mutual funds, then all of a sudden having 500 positions in their account because it's just less interpretable for them as opposed to looking and saying, all right, well, I've got 10% in you know, US large cap and 5% in small cap and this amount of international and everything. So I would say that from the advisor's perspective, it probably requires a little bit more handholding on that from that perspective. But I think that when clients see the results, um, which tax loss harvesting is really a um, direct sort of tax deferral or tax savings, it's, it's very, very powerful. Yeah, to, to your point, I wonder if like the, the tax efficiency of this would also help like, with behavior. Because if you think about it, like I remember Dan Egan from Betterment would talk a long time ago about how when a client was like in a panic during a period, like they would hit him with a screen, you know, here's the tax bill you're gonna have to pay if you sell right now. And like, you know, if you, if you followed this strategy to be tax efficient, like it feels like you could do the same thing here. You could say, all right, you know, you followed this tax efficient index, you're about to panic. Like, it seems like it would help for behavior to say, all right, this is the tax bill you're gonna, you're gonna be paying if you do this. Yeah, totally agree. And we've, we've now gotten to the point with um, a number of partners that maybe set an initial allocation in, let's say, 2019 or early 2020. The paradigm obviously changed a lot. And so they're going in and making changes to allocations now um, across the, the client base, sort of their own proprietary investment model that they implement through the platform. When we make those changes for taxable accounts, we'll, we treat that as a transition. So it's being done in a, in a tax-friendly way. So it also allows for a client that maybe says, you know what, I'm, I'm panicking, I'm panicking, like I got to do something because some people do need to take action and that's actually, you know, more important for them. Okay, let's maybe instead of owning the large cap index, maybe we get a little bit more defensive. Maybe we add some of a quality allocation or a defensive allocation. So you've still got the exposure and we're going to do it in a tax efficient way, but you're still going to be exposed to the market so we can stick with your long-term plan. Like that's a really powerful conversation to be able to have for clients in the midst of, you know, panic. Yeah. And I think a system like this creates more of those opportunities to have those conversations, more of those touch points for the advisor to be doing, you know, good work at those sort of points and times that clients need it most. The one, I guess, time I could see it, and this is, this would just be true of all passive investing. 
Um, and I'll bring up Jim here because uh, I remember he wrote, you know, from whatever, 2000 to 2009. I mean, it was basically a lost decade. Um, very few people were calling the bottom at the end of 08 or early 09. But I remember O'Shaughnessy wrote, I think the paper was called like a generational buying opportunity that was posted on O'Shaughnessy's website. And then it ended up being, you know, a phenomenal time. But if if the markets were to go through a long, dragged out, sustained period of like kind of relative underperformance, like some of this passive stuff might have, you know, people might get impatient. But I mean, that that would be true of a lot of different strategies, not just this. So. Yeah, I mean, it's totally a fair point. I mean, given where we are in the market today, um, you know, again, passive is just a factor strategy. It's just market cap. Every factor goes through ups and downs. Market cap just has this kind of unique feature where it is the market and you can basically own the market without being forced to to rebalance. So turnover is very, very low, which is great for tax loss harvesting. That's sort of unique to it relative to other other factors. But um, I would say that what we're hearing from most of our clients is sort of along those lines of, hey, passive has had its day. We may be moving into a different regime. And when we kind of look across the, the platform and the way that assets are allocated, there's some interesting psychology that, that plays out as well. It's kind of roughly allocated now about 70% passive, 30% active. But that active component is sort of growing and it's growing in kind of a more defensive space. So things like dividend growth allocations, which tend to be more defensive quality, a specifically defensive allocation, defensive equities as well. Um, so I think that a lot of people are kind of thinking along the same lines. It seems like well, you guys have clearly decided to go through the advisor channel to offer this. So advisors use it for their clients. Um, firms use it. Uh, for their advisors. Uh, but, you know, there seems to be like a uh, development happening in the retail space where firms like Fidelity, I think Schwab might be getting into this and offering this to retail investors. It was kind of funny. Jack and I were talking before the podcast and we were sort of looking at the Canvas site and, you know, there's, there's, and you brought up the ESG, you have the 80 different, you know, things that you can bring in, you have your factors you can bring in. So I, you know, I'm just interested. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens on the retail space and whether or not retail investors can actually embrace this and utilize this in an, in an effective way, or if it's really, it should be an advisor, investor, more partnership. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I think that it, it gets similar, like our, our tax conversation at the outset, it, it gets super complicated really, really quick once you start layering in dimensions. And I think that it's something from what we've experienced so far that RIAs are primarily embracing the long list of options. The platforms less so, um, where they may take a look at the at the platform and basically say, this is just too much for us to get our arms around, maybe from a compliance perspective or just a breadth of investment options that are available. And I think that a retail investor, um, no doubt there are probably some really sophisticated ones that would do exceptionally well with it. I think that most people, it would be, it would be difficult um, and it would be, they would need an advisor to at the very least walk them through the choices, the option sets, the implications. I mean, when we onboard advisors, I'm going to say between myself and our relationship people, um, even outside of the sales process, there's got to be at least somewhere between 15 and 20 hours that are spent just 
reviewing the options, the operational capabilities, how it works, how you need to use it. Um, so I think that that would be a barrier, um, at least for at least for our platform, um, for most for most retail investors. This has been really great. I, I'm very happy we invited you to come on to talk about this because this is um, this is some great stuff that you guys are working on. I think it's 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 been I, I've learned a lot, so I, I certainly appreciate appreciate that. Um, wanted to pivot here at the end and ask you uh, about inflation because we had you on. It was late 2021, and we talked about sort of the history of inflation and what was going on at the time. And I think. That was, it was late 21 that inflation, yeah, inflation was really starting to pick up. Um, and we were kind of looking at that and comparing it to the 1970s and talking about the different market regimes and landscapes. But I'm just interesting, uh, excuse me, I'm just interested in how, what you're thinking about inflation today, where we are, do you see it being maybe stickier than uh, some thought at the time? I mean, where, where do you come down on it? We're in a really tough spot. <laughs> um really tough spot right now. I think the volatility of the market is really speaking to that. Um, you know, even today, Chair Powell did his biannual, uh, or sorry, semi-annual uh, congressional testimony. And uh, markets are pretty pretty volatile today, down close to 2%, um, just, you know, on those remarks. So I think that our general expectation going forward is kind of this volatile seesaw market continuing. The inflation dynamic is very layered and nuanced, but I'm really surprised at the way that the market is sort of taking in the information because inflation has been higher than 2% since March of 2021. So, so two years above the FOMC's target, I think it's safe to say that inflation is ingrained and it's been two years. and. Um, you know, I think right now the last print was maybe like over 6% headline inflation, which actually is kind of in line with all of the things that you could, um, say you're sort of drivers of, of inflation, if you will. So you think of kind of like the waterfall of what drives inflation. So for, for me, at least in my paradigm, the way that I think about it, it's, it's corporate revenues, um, which is kind of a proxy for sort of the level up from GDP, but corporate revenues grew around 14% year over year. Those drive wages. Wages are up 5% year over year. Wages in combination with credit growth and savings are really what fuel spend and spending, just demand and supply is ultimately what fuels inflation. Uh, so wages are up 5%, as I mentioned. Credit growth is about 8% per year. Savings, we had those massive, massive spikes due to the COVID stimulus of like 30% plus. Basically, everybody had so much money, they didn't know what to do with it. Um, savings rates typically are kind of around 8% over the last several decades. They're running about 4% now because we're basically working off that savings, which we've still got over a trillion left to work off. And so as a result of all that, when you look at spending, spending comes in two forms. It's consumption and investment consumption, uh, uh, the PCE, um, uh, personal consumption expenditures, which the Fed uses that as their inflation gauge. The actual consumption component is growing at 7% per year. And then fixed investment uh, with, without real estate is kind of growing at 10% per year. So none of those numbers are anywhere near 2%. <laughs> um, 
long way of saying, I just think it's going to take some time to get down to that 2% level, which I think that it will happen at some point because that's what all the like extra long-term demographic trends tell you is going to happen. It's basically just a global demographic headwind because we're all getting older. The population is aging. But for the next few years, I think it's safe to say we're going to be above 2% for, for a while. And I think that people are really, I'm trying to think about how to, how to say this. People are kind of being misled by the long end of the curve because that market has become so distorted. Long end of the curve, meaning the long end of, of the um, of treasury securities, 10, 30, 20 year securities has been so distorted over the last decade that I just, I don't know if that reading is like quite an accurate one in this cycle because it's projecting long-term inflation expectations of like 2%. But when you look at any of the consumer surveys, you're looking at inflation expectations of around 4%. So I think it's going to be a dicey next few years as it relates to inflation, monetary policy, and the markets are all going to be dovetailed off of that. So that's my crystal ball. Well, I'm glad I asked you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, Aaron. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.